All right, here we go. Let's talk about Jesus. Uh, this is Keith, and we are getting ready to set up our final installment of the podcast series that we've been doing about how Jesus is the way in many ways. And so uh, I am on my own, kind of, today, but uh, I'm in my son's bedroom, which is also my office currently. And uh, I don't like talking to nobody, so I asked my wife Bethany to come in here, and so she's sitting here crocheting beside... cross-stitch. She is sitting here cross-stitching. That's going to be how it is. Uh, Beside (laughs) me here, as I'm going to just share a little bit from the scriptures and just kind of riff. This is... (laughs) Not as prepared as I prefer, but hey, we're going to have some fun here. And uh, and so if I get too off topic or if I'm confusing, Bethany's just going to speak up and say that didn't make any sense. So so let's do it. The first couple weeks that we spent uh, podcasting about this topic, we looked at the different ways that Jesus is the way. And so we talked, the first talk was about how Jesus is the way that we overcome sin's power, which is really what people think about most of the time when they think about Jesus' statement, I am the way. Uh, They think, well, it's about the atonement, it's about how victory over sin and eternal life and everything, and and it's, it's a yes and. And so we talked about how that's valuable and it's beautiful, and that's a starting point, but there's so many other ways that Jesus is the way. It's not just a get to heaven Uh, card or anything like that. So the second uh, week we talked about how Jesus is the way that we experience God's love and that somehow God's love, because Jesus is God come in the flesh, God's love is communicated in an incredibly clear way through the character and the heart of Jesus in a way that the world had never before seen because now we know what God looks like. Then we talked about how Jesus is the way that we understand the nature of the kingdom, which is about what God wants to do in the world. And, uh, and so that was kind of fun to riff on that with both Sabrina and Dwayne. And then today we're going to talk about religion and, uh, and how Jesus is the way that we move beyond religion in the world of discipleship. And that sounds maybe like it's just snarky or, or whatever. Everybody likes to bust on religion. Uh, but we're going to talk about why that's actually a central theme in the life of Jesus and in the Gospels. Uh, but, but it's important to talk about because, um, I love how John Stewart put it many, many years ago when he was hosting the daily show and they did a series or a, uh, a little piece on, on some things that were happening in the global church. And they said, religion, a powerful healing force in a world torn apart by religion, because that's just the way it is. Um, religion is seen as incredibly good or incredibly damaging. And and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what religion seeks to accomplish and what the religion of Jesus' time was seeking to accomplish and why Jesus did some things to intentionally mess with that system. All right. So uh, so the word religion is comes from this Latin word that means to, to bind things together, to, to tie t- things together. And really, when you think about that, that's that's where we kind of have the, the understanding that religion consists of all these rules and rituals and regulations and routines and everything like that. But also, religion really, if, if we think of religion as binding, what, what religion attempts to do is to find a framework to bind people to God. It, it's, it's to find ways to bind heaven and earth, to connect from our human experience to the supernatural experience. And so people have created these systems 
maybe for as they seek truth, maybe as they seek power. We don't know. Um, but there's many different religions that have been formed. Christian faith is certainly one of them, but it originated from an anti-religion movement, I would argue, that we see in Jesus. Jesus was deeply embedded in his own religious movement uh, in, in the Hebrew faith. And the Hebrew faith at the time of Jesus was one of the most detail-oriented, um, I'm trying to think of the, the best word to, to use, it was, uh, it was profoundly developed set of rules and routines and rituals in order to experience God. And there's so much that's good there. But, but at the same time, there had become so much that was damaging. Uh, and, and the reason that it was damaging was because it clearly kept many people out. People that were outside of Jewish faith, people that were not uh, up to snuff on the cleanliness issues. Uh, and what it meant was not just that you didn't wash your hands, which seems particularly relevant these days, but, um, but that you were unclean because of your behavior, because of the job that you held, because of your status in society. So anyways, uh, so, so Jesus comes on the scene, and, and in Hebrew thought and in Hebrew religion, there was this hope that one day, and you see it all throughout the scriptures, that one day God would come and make things right. Okay, and, and this, was, this was the hope. And until that point, or during that point, the Hebrew people's job was to follow all the rules and to fulfill their end of the covenant. Now, we talked about covenantal theology a couple of weeks ago, so we're not going to go back into that, except for to say that it involved following an enormous amount of rules and laws. All right, so what's interesting is that Jesus comes, and in many ways, Jesus is presented in the Gospels as a lawbreaker. In fact, one of the first things that John does in his gospel, in John 2, Jesus is invited to a party, and it's a wedding, and uh, they have, uh, at the entrance, they have these giant jars that would have, um, that could fit dozens of gallons of water, and they were ceremonial hand-washing jars where you would cleanse yourself um, before you would enter into the space. And so he takes these, and you probably know the story, if you don't, you can look it up, and uh, he's not going to do anything, but they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother gives him a hard time and says, hey, you should do something about this. And he says, it's not yet my time. And she says, I don't care. And, uh, and so she kind of pushes him into his first miracle. It's a great story. And, uh, and anyways, Jesus turns this water into wine. And there's two things happening. Number one, Jesus is bringing the celebration. That's a big deal. But the second thing is that he's bringing the celebration by misusing something that was considered holy and religious, and it was deeply offensive, because that was considered a tool to be religious and please God, and it was a ritual that everybody went through. And so Jesus intentionally chooses uh, a ritualistic symbol, and he transforms it into a symbol of celebration and party by, by turning the water that was in there into wine. So, so we look at Jesus and we say, okay, he is what we might call an iconoclast. That's how the early church followers talk, or early church fathers talked about him, but like a rule breaker. But at the same time, in Matthew 5, one of the first things he says uh, as he's beginning to do his, his Sermon on the Mount teaching, which would have been seen as challenging tons of Hebrew ways of being and following the law, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what we need to think of as we think about the possibility that Jesus came and he, and he began to do some things that shut down the, the Hebrew religion, we have to understand that the first statement that he makes as he's teaching people how to be uh, different 
in God's kingdom and what God's kingdom is all about. He says, by the way, I've come not to abolish the law, not to get rid of it. I've actually come to fulfill it. I've come to finish the requirements of the law. Okay, so that's really, really important as we think about this. Okay, let's talk about place and time. Because if we're talking about how, how religion is our desire to have earth and heaven meet, the Hebrew people at the time of Jesus, they had two ways of thinking about earth and heaven meeting. They had the place where earth and heaven would meet, and they had the time that earth and heaven would meet. Okay, so we're going to talk about the place first of all. Uh, the, the place in the Hebrew system that earth and heaven met was the temple. And the temple started as the tabernacle. Uh, in, in fact, even in, in the story of Genesis, um, we get this word tabernacle that's sprinkled throughout that's linked with God's presence. And, and so um, the Hebrew people, they set up a tent uh, that is in, in the midst of the Exodus. It is the kind of defining moment of their journey out. Crossing the, the, the sea is not actually the primary moment in the Exodus story, it's when God tabernacles among them. They set up the tent and God dwells there. And so later they set up this temple because that's what you did at these times. You, you created a place to worship God. And God was not an idol, so you couldn't fashion a big giant statue of God because that was forbidden based on the commands of God. But you could create a temple. And, and you get various perspectives on if God's pleased with this or not. Uh, it seems that it's not the ultimate goal of God, but it is something that he's willing to work with because it's a human form uh, that, that God's people desired. But different time, different story, different place. So anyways, the three things that, that you needed. So, so by the time that a temple was fully established, when it was built in Jerusalem, uh, and, and it became uh, this, what we would look at as a multi-million dollar kind of center of it all complex, the way that you would uh, have heaven and earth meet at the temple was through three things. You, you needed the temple itself, and within that temple, you needed a priest whose job was to represent the people before God, and you needed a sacrifice. This was how you would get right with God. And so people would come in, and they would bring a sacrifice, usually that they would purchase at the, uh, at the temple or bring with them, and it was supposed to be a, a spotless animal, often a lamb, sometimes a goat, sometimes a bull. Sometimes if you were poorer, you would bring uh, birds, things like that. There were lots of possibilities if you couldn't afford it. But then you would give it to the priest. The priest would make the sacrifice. They would, they would take this and they would put it on the altar in a special place called the Holy of Holies behind a veil, um, behind a curtain. Uh, so, so anyways, this is, this is the story of how sin was forgiven, all right? All that to say, I don't really want to talk about that too much. What I want to talk about is that in the ministry of Jesus, what we see the, the Gospels explaining is that Jesus intentionally places himself as the new temple. And so the way that he does that is... Uh, and Hebrews talks about Jesus as being a great high priest. So Jesus is, is the priest that represents God's people in this pure way before God. He represents all of humanity in this covenant that we talked about a couple weeks ago that had never been able to be fulfilled because God's people always screwed up because they were human and they were disobedient. But Jesus lives in perfect obedience as a representative of the people before God. 
So Jesus takes this priestly role and goes in to connect with God on behalf of the people. But the interesting thing is that when Jesus, uh, with his disciples, sets up Passover, which is the time where animals would be sacrificed and where you would remember the forgiveness of God, Jesus places himself at the center of this kind of new meal. Okay, so that's really, really, really important. So Jesus then um, becomes, through the crucifixion, through placing himself on Passover night in the position of the lamb that was slain, Jesus becomes both the priest and the sacrifice. So you see that for, for people who were understanding uh, their, their faith completely through the Hebrew system, for Jesus to do something like this changes, changes everything. Um, in fact, Hebrews says, and where um, sins and lawless acts have been forgiven, this is in Hebrew 10, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So, so when a sacrifice has been made, Colossians says this in, in chapter 2, Jesus forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay? Jesus took it away, nailing it to the cross, because he filled the role of sacrifice. Again, we talked about all the atonement stuff earlier. But the point that I'm trying to make is that the place that God's people understood heaven and earth to meet was the temple. The temple needed a priest and a sacrifice. Jesus, in his life, becomes both priest and sacrifice. But it gets even better. Jesus, in, in John 2, uh, after right after the celebration uh, of the water into wine, which is really, really interesting, in the book of John, he puts Jesus's uh, turning over of the tables when he goes into the temple and he clears the temple courts. John puts this at the beginning of the gospel because he wants to link all of this stuff together. And, and so Jesus comes into the temple and he flips over all of the money changers and all the people selling the, uh, the animals They're, for sacrifice. He flips their tables, not them. Oh, thank you. Yeah. He doesn't <laughs> flip them. He doesn't do like a, like a WWE kind of a, of a thing. He, uh, he just flips the tables uh, and, he, and he sends everything out. But what we think is Je that Jesus is just angry that people have become like all legalistic and that they've become about money and everything like that. But what Jesus actually did is when, when he messed that system up, he actually paused the ability of the entire sacrificial system to continue on. He paused the ability for sins to be forgiven. Really, really interesting thing. And what he says... After that, in this is in John 2, in verse, um, verse 18, they say, what authority, people are really, really ticked off at what he did. They said, what authority do you have that you can show us that you have, or what, uh, what sign can you show us to prove that you have your authority to do all this? And the sign, Jesus says, is, well, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, obviously, we read that and we're like, oh, we know what he's saying. He's tricking him. He's talking about himself and how he's going to, you know, rise from the dead. But at this point, that was seen as challenging uh, the entire temple system by saying, go ahead and rip the temple down, which was considered blasphemy to speak of the temple being destroyed like this, and to suggest that he could rebuild a temple that took that took years and years and years to build. So, so what's happening then right afterwards is that Jesus goes out, and what does he do in his ministry? Now that he's flipped over the temple and all that is in it, he goes and he forgives sins. 
This is why Jesus is seen as such an iconoclast, such a rule breaker. He goes out and he does the thing that is only allowed to be done in the temple. And the only thing that we can conclude from this was that Jesus is himself becoming the new temple. That's what Jesus's attitude was, that Jesus is the priest, Jesus is the sacrifice, and Jesus is the very temple itself. And that that becomes more powerful because if the goal of religion is for heaven and earth to meet, and the Hebrew people thought that where heaven and earth met, the place that it met, was in the temple, Jesus takes that out and he says, no, the place that heaven and earth meet is me. And so he says things like he says to the woman at the well in, what is that, John uh, 4? He says to the woman at the well that, you know, there's a time coming where people won't worship at the temple, not this mountain or that mountain, they'll worship in spirit and in truth. Because he's talking about how everybody will be able to access God in a way that the temple could never provide. And so there's, there's beauty in this entire experience of Jesus being the new place. And of course, what we read in the Gospels is that when Jesus dies at that moment, what happens? The temple curtain is torn in half. The temple curtain at the Holy of Holies was, uh, was understood as the place where the presence of God dwells. So the temple is ripped in half and the presence of God is set free because when Jesus dies, the, 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 literally the presence of God dies in that moment too. But also when Jesus rises, the presence of God, the location of God's forgiveness and spirit is now out of the temple and it would be forever. And the interesting thing is that a few generations later, after thousands of years, a few generations later, the temple is, is overcome and it was never rebuilt. And so it's very interesting to see that even though my Jewish friends might disagree that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, the temple was destroyed <laughs> and it was destroyed in finality and it has not been rebuilt since that time. And so, so it's really interesting to see that Jesus transforms the Hebrew place of worship and all of its regulations, all of the need to continue to go on with sacrifices over and over and over again, all the need to do all these rules, Jesus says, it's actually, it's actually finished. Um, it's, it's done. We don't need to continue to do the same things that people thought we had to do over and over and over and over to do and to get right with God. Uh, Hebrews 7 again says the former regulation is set aside. Regulation means all the rules that were required at one point to come near to God was set aside because it was, this is harsh language, this is offensive language, because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, but a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. In Hebrews 7:18, and the better hope by which we draw near to God is the hope of Jesus, of Jesus being the place that heaven and earth meet, and and us being able to be involved in relationship with Jesus in that way. Okay, so we talked about a transformation of place um, from the temple to Jesus, but there's also a transformation of time. The Hebrew people, they didn't just say that heaven and earth met at a certain place at the temple. They said that that there was a, a time, a, a time that heaven and earth met that they would be reminded of until the time of God's ultimate coming. And that time was the Sabbath each week. And this is what's really, really cool and interesting. Because uh, like I said, we're talking about place and time during these minutes. And so what happens is that Jesus comes on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels. And in, in, um, and in Mark 1, he says, the time is fulfilled. So he talks about the fact that there is a time 
that has been looked for that is coming now, okay? In Luke 4, he does the same thing. He says, um, this is, he, he quotes Isaiah 61 at the beginning of Luke 4, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. That's about the year of the Lord, which was called the year of Jubilee. So Jesus says, I'm here and I'm representing the year of Jubilee. That was the year of seven sets of seven, when all debts were set free, all, or all debts were forgiven, all slaves were set free, and there was a year of celebration. There was a time there. Okay, so there's all these time things that Jesus talks about, all right? But also, um, the the idea of the seventh seven, the reason that, it, that the year of Jubilee happened in sets of seven was because of the creation story. At the end of the, the first week on the seventh day, there was rest. God rested. God gave rest to his people. So God's people celebrate this day of rest as a reminder that there is a time that God's present or that God's future is touching down in the midst of God's present, okay? There is an age to come, but right now it breaks into the present age when we rest from all of our work, when our souls are able to be restored. And that's what Sabbath was. Really, really interesting to understand this. Sabbath was not just, hey, you get to take a break every week. Sabbath was a reminder that God's present or that God's future was touching down in the present and that God's people had access to that. Again, we only look at Sabbath and we say, well, this was just kind of a legalistic practice by this time. Yes, but what Jesus was doing was something far beyond that. So Jesus comes in and in Matthew 11 and 12, there's this really, really interesting thing. And and here's... Okay, a little bit of Bible stuff. Chapters, chapter numbers, they were not a part of the original manuscript. They weren't added for hundreds of years, okay? So sometimes if you want to get into the story, you have to remove the verses and the chapters to see what's happening. So there's a famous statement that Jesus talks about after talking about his father and, and the connection that he has with his father. And he says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, And listen to this with an ear for the Sabbath. Okay, with an ear for God's rest. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again here, it's pretty clear. Jesus says, do you want to find rest? Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul, right? The next thing that happens, and this is chapter 12, so everybody stops because they read the end of chapter 11, and that's the end of your devotional thought for the day. But but when chapter 12 starts, it says, at that time, so he just made a statement, and then it says, at that time, so the same moment is happening. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So he's making this statement on the Sabbath, and then he's about to do an activity that illustrates what he's talking about. And what does he do? What does he do? He breaks the Sabbath law. It's a very simple thing, but he plucks some heads of grain so that he and his disciples can eat as he's walking through a field. Believe it or not, that was considered harvesting, which was against the Sabbath law. That's why he gets in trouble. Yes, there's a lot of legalism going on here. So he defends himself when people pick on him for it, and he and he gives an example of David. But here's what he says. Um, He says, uh, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath because they eat. Um, (laughs) They eat and they do the Sabbath work. He's saying they desecrate the Sabbath and yet they're considered innocent. 
he's saying you're you're blaming me for something, but you you and I both know that you're just uh, you're nitpicking here because there's always been exceptions. But then he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So we go back to to Jesus being the temple. If you had understood what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so what ends up happening then is he goes on right from there. We're still on Sabbath. He goes on from there, and he sees a man that has a shriveled hand, who has a deformed hand, okay? And then he turns it into this cool little object lesson, and he says, hey, is it lawful to do good or bad? But, but here's the cool thing. In verse 13 of chapter 12, he looks at the man and says, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The word for restored there is the same word as the root of what the Sabbath was made for the soul to be. Okay? So the idea is that Jesus goes out on the Sabbath and he brings restoration to a man. In God's people's mind at the time, Sabbath was the time that God's future and God's present met. And you experience the restoration in a tiny piece that would one day come in fullness. Jesus comes and he heals a guy and he says, you are restored. Matthew says, he was completely restored. This is the idea of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, you don't need to follow a Sabbath rule in order to find rest. It's not about following the law. I will give you rest. Replace all of your Sabbath rules with presence with me. Replace all of your temple requirements with connection with me. I will fulfill all of the requirements that the old system had, and you are simply free to rest in grace and in communion with God. Now, a system like this, a Jesus like this, makes it almost impossible to create a religious boundary around it unless you're a human being, in which case you're brilliant at it. So what we've done is we've taken a radical system and message, or a radical system-breaking message of grace and turned it back into a new system where in order to receive that grace now, you have to jump through a number of hoops. And we are, we're back into a new level of, of Phariseeism if we're not really, really careful. And so the, the message here that is such good news is that Jesus comes and he sets us free from the idea that we need to do anything in order to somehow earn God's favor. There is no sacrifice needed anymore. There is no priest needed that we have to go to to make things right for us because Jesus has played that role. There is no temple or church building that we must go inside in order to find the place that God dwells. And there is no waiting for God to one day come into the future. It's all here now. So the question then that comes up is why on earth do we do any rules or rituals or or routines in the church? Why don't we just kind of enjoy this quarantine forever? Why do we even come digitally to Zoom together on Sundays? Like, what's the point if we have been set free from all of the power of religion? And, and the difference is uh, the way that we approach certain things in light of Jesus become redeemed. So there are practices that we might do that could become quickly religious, or on the flip side, they could become deeply meaningful. You know, I could, I could take Bethany out to dinner if um, I wanted to 
make her feel better because I felt bad about buying a grill without asking. Right. And so I'm going to take her out to dinner hoping that she'll, she'll like forgive me. That's, that's great. I guess actually it's not great. It's not a really good uh, approach to marriage on the whole. You should have talked about it beforehand, but, but what I, the point being, I didn't really think through this example before I'm going down this rabbit hole. So just stop me, Bethany, if this gets (laughs) real bad, but, but the point being that I can do that practice so that I feel good about the marriage or I can do that practice and we can go out to dinner and do the exact same thing because I want our relationship to thrive. Not because I want Bethany to be impressed with me, not because I want her to forgive me all the time, but because I know that when we spend time together, I am fulfilled. I know that our marriage is going to be better. We don't we don't do things to become more married. This is this is the crux of religion. In a religious atmosphere, you have to do things in order to be okay as a Christian. In order to be a Christian, I have to do the same thing over and over and over again. But the problem is that that's been done by Jesus already. So so I don't I don't go out on a date with Bethany so that I can be married still at the end of the night. The marriage is already done, okay? What I'm doing is I'm trying to strengthen that marriage. I I want that marriage to thrive. I want our relationship to continue to reach new depths because it brings such joy and fulfillment. That at least that's the way it ought to be. So so when we think about these things, think about the different areas that could become legalistic, like going to church, right? I'm supposed to be a good Christian to feel good about myself. I guess I'll go to church, right? Think about that mindset versus a mindset of grace where the church is a living community in a local place and time, and we are seeking the kingdom together. So when we come together, I get to become a participant in God's community. I get to become a part of that family. Think about how we think of worship and prayer. Maybe here's, here's the, the religious approach. I need to say enough prayers long enough for a certain amount of time and do my devotions in order to be holy and feel good about myself. Compare that to an experience of grace that says, worship and prayer remind me that God does not dwell far, but is totally accessible to me. That, that God's not made of stone or bronze, but God is a spirit that hears me that travels with me, that sees me as his kid. And I get to open myself up to God anytime and I get to hear God's voice. What a gift. Reading the Bible. I need to know enough information so that I can be a Christian. Compare that to an expression of grace. I want to continue to know more of the God who loves me. And I want to see my place in the story that has gone beyond generations and generations. And I want to dive deeper into the character of Jesus. This is a way that I can do that. Think about giving, right? Um, I should give a little bit so that I can feel better about myself and then in parentheses, right, and do whatever I want with the rest of my resources guilt-free. But think about a, an expression of grace that says, when I hold my resources with an open hand, I learn to trust God since all my resources ultimately belong to him anyways. I experience the joy of releasing things that, that threaten to capture my heart and I'm set free in the process. There's such a difference between those things. Even think about compassion. I'm supposed to help people because that's what Christians do. So I guess I'll be kind and compassionate, you know, so that God's happy with me. You can do that if you want. I don't disagree in some level with that motivation. But think about every single person is given inherent value, but not the same opportunities. Every single person suffers. 
And as they are created in the image of God, if I can be a part of helping to alleviate that suffering, if I can be an understanding perspective, then I get to experience Jesus in a whole new way based on what he told me. That's, that's a, a desire based because, not because I have to, none of this happens because I have to, it happens because I can. It happens because I've been invited to live differently because I've been set free from any need to live a rule-based life. And instead, I live grace-based, and I actually do more than rule-following could ever accomplish with a spirit of freedom. So I guess the, the question is, today, as you're kind of um, stuck in your house, maybe, or, or kind of floundering, like, what's the good news of, of the fact that Jesus brings us to a place beyond religious expressions of faith? And I, I think two things, uh, and it's really just the exact same things we just talked about. Uh, one, one is about place, and that is that Jesus, Jesus is now where heaven and earth meet. And through the Spirit, he's everywhere. So if, if Jesus is the place that heaven and earth meet, and Jesus is accessible to you right now, then it means that, that the fact that we can't gather together at a spirit, at a church um, gathering, that does not hinder us from accessing Jesus that does not hinder us from, from being able to dwell with God well. It doesn't hinder us from being able to be God's body, the body of Christ in the world. Uh, the, the place that heaven and earth meet is right there beside you, right there within you right now. And so, so this season uh, ought not beat us down in the same way that it could otherwise, if we think that somehow we can't access God in the same way. And, and secondly, the time uh, if if Jesus is where God's present and God's future meet, and Jesus is accessible, then that means that each moment becomes a chance to find rest in God. And if you are overburdened by the fact that you've got your kids 24-7, and there is literally no Sabbath rest available, that doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. What it means is that restoration is always possible because Jesus meets us in a way that even a 10-minute break can't accomplish, or a three-hour break can't accomplish. Jesus becomes our resting place. Jesus becomes where we keep our soul restored. So restoration is possible in the midst of this season, uh, even if you are overburdened and crazy busy by your work. Also, patience is possible. You do not have to... Um, you will you will be able to wait this out because God's present is available. God's future is available in the present moment. God's peace, God's restoration, God's hope, all of it becomes available now because Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our resting place. So anyways, that's really riffing, and I just riffed for 35 minutes, and I wasn't supposed to riff that long. But, um, but the, the hope is that as you are going about your days and thinking about what it means that Jesus is the way in so many different ways, one of the things that will bring you the greatest sense of joy is that God does not dwell based on a set of rules that we follow with us. God does not dwell with us based on our ability to, um, to get everything right, based on our ability to have everything figured out. Instead, God goes before us, and Jesus, in, through his Spirit, becomes the place that heaven and earth meet and becomes the time that heaven and earth meet. And there's beauty in that as we continue to reflect on it. So hopefully that gives you some food for thought, um, just to toy around with in your head, to be thankful for what Jesus is up to, for what Jesus has done, for the fact that Jesus is still around. So, uh, yeah, blessings to you and God do something with, uh, with these, 
scriptures in us and with your presence in us. And, uh, and we trust that as we hear the scriptures and mull over them, that something beautiful forms in us that leads us to kingdom action and to personal transformation. So be well, friends. Peace.